Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you again, uh, Mufti Saab, for that amazing uh, discussion about the history of the compilation of Hadith. I kind of want to move on now to, um, I guess, a more detailed discussion of of Hadith itself in terms of what is the anatomy of a typical um, Hadith and how do we know that Hadith is reliable? What books should we should we you know look at to see, look through to see if any given hadith is reliable what are what are common books people study in when they want to become experts in the field of hadith sure okay so every hadith comprises two dimensions the first is the text which is known as the matan and the second and more importantly for our purposes is the senate the chain of transmission so oftentimes when we read secondary collections of hadith such as the abu salihin we're not uh, often exposed to the chains of transmission we only see the prophet said such and such or he did such and such but a hadith classically uh, comprises of both the chain of transmission the senate as well as the text what is the chain of transmission? Basically, when an author collects a hadith, he includes therein the informant from whom he heard that hadith, the source, who that person heard from, who that person heard from, etc., until you reach back to the Prophet So those are the two parts of hadith. And when we investigate a hadith, we could be coming to it for a number of reasons. Am I interested in deriving um, the jurisprudence, the legal aspects that, okay, what um, legal issues do I understand from the hadith? Am I using this to kind of inform my practice in terms of like the virtues that are mentioned there? Am I studying it to ascertain its authenticity? Then I'll go to the chain of transmission. So depending on what objective I have, with that hadith, I will check the relevant books. And um, oftentimes we want to know whether a hadith is authentic to begin with. And they have an entire science of narrator criticism known as Al-Murrijal, where every link of a hadith, the narrators and transmitters, their lives are well documented. And we can go back to those works um, that have been written very early on from the second century onwards, where um, you have detailed biographies of these narrators and from there I can determine whether a particular report is authentic or not. I mean, just to give an example, let's take, for instance, a hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari. The first hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari goes, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Indeed, actions are based upon intentions. Now, Imam al-Bukhari mentions that text, but before that text, he mentions who he heard that hadith from, who that person heard that hadith from, going all the way back to Alqama, the student of uh, Umar radiallahu anhu, from Umar, from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu So that link from Imam al-Bukhari to Alqama, to Umar, to the Prophet sallallahu is known as the Isnad. Now when I'm faced with a report of that nature and I want to figure out the authenticity, I will check up each individual link and then I can come to a particular grading for that hadith. I mean, that's just one among multiple ways I can determine authenticity. And has the, the criteria of the various criteria criteria for for determining the authenticity of a hadith has that evolved from the earlier stages to I guess you know later stages? Um, so there are a few things we need to bear in mind. Number one, people use hadith in different disciplines for different reasons. And for that exact reason, scholars have formulated different criteria for authenticity. So you'll have jurists, scholars of law, the fuqaha, who have their own set of criteria in determining authenticity only because their objective, their focus, their field of interest is very different. The scholars of hadith have a very different interest, so their criteria of authenticity is very different. 
Now, if we're going to specifically speak about the scholars of Hadith, for the most part, they have a common thread that unites their terminology, their yardstick of authenticity. So um, by the 9th century, meaning the time of the renowned commentator of Sahih al-Bukhari who from Cairo, his name was Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, by his time, the definition of a Sahih hadith was a hadith which meets five conditions. Condition number one, the transmitter transmitters in the chain are reliable. Number two, their memory is satisfactory. Number three, the chain is continuous, meaning every link heard from their source and that source heard from its source, etc. Number four, there are no anomalies either in the chain or in the text. And number five, there are no hidden defects. Now, obviously, these are just words for many people. There's much more detail in what these words mean, what do these terms mean. But for the most part, these are the five um, conditions that determine authenticity. Can you However, elaborate on hidden person, defects? Sorry? Can you elaborate just briefly on what you mean when you say hidden defects? A hidden defect is basically a scholar would look at a chain of transmission and at first blush, it seems authentic. But upon further examination, the scholar realizes that, wait, no, no, there's actually a, a fault here. There's actually a flaw here. Like, for instance, if A commonly hears or heard hadith from B, you would assume that the chain is continuous because A is the student of B. But an expert hadith will look at this chain and say, look, although in normal circumstances A hears from B, for X, Y, and Z reason, this particular instance, he did not hear it. So to the naked eye, to the average person, they would not be able to detect that. It's a hidden defect that experts are able to identify. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now, I mentioned five criteria for the acceptance of a hadith or to make it authentic, the highest tier of authenticity. As conditions are not met, it begins uh, decreasing in authenticity. It go to what is known as hasan, a lower category of reliability. And if more conditions are not met, it goes down to ba'if. But the one thing I feel is important to point out is the first person to spell out this definition of a of a Sahih, authentic hadith, was a 7th century scholar by the name of Abu Amr ibn Salah, one of the most famous hadith scholars from uh, Damascus. He spelt it out. But as later scholars explain, although ibn Salah spelt the definition out, in terms of practice, as early as Imam Shafi'i and Imam Muslim, who were from the 2nd and 3rd century, they were already grading hadith around the same line. So yes, they may have spelt it later, but in practice, it already existed very early on. Understood. And to your question about did the criteria of um, authentication evolve over time? Look, we have to remember they were human beings and individually people may have had different ways of ascertaining truth because what is the field of hadith? Basically, a report comes to me from the Prophet ﷺ, but I have a number of people between me and the Prophet ﷺ. Now, it's my responsibility as a historian to determine whether this is reliable or not. And given my circumstances, my qualification, my disposition, uh, my level of knowledge, I will formulate different criteria to establish it. How close am I to those links, etc. So, there were differences among the scholars. There's a famous difference between Imam Muslim and Imam al-Bukhari in terms of what constitutes continuity. That when is a chain continuous? Does uh, every link, do they have to hear from their source? Or is it fine if they had lived in the same time, just to give an example? So there were certain instances where they disagreed among themselves. But for the most part, they shared common uh, criteria and objectives. There's a scholar, his name is um, Sheikh Hamza Malibari, um, famous scholar graduate from Umm al-Qura, a phenomenal scholar of hadith, and he points out that in law, you have multiple schools. You have the Hanafi school, the Maliki school, the Hanbali school. All of these are schools of law. So you have diverse uh, you know, principles and, uh, sub, uh, 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 and positive law. Everything is different. But in the field of hadith, 
it's difficult to say that the earlier scholars among themselves, they had different schools. Yes, they had minor differences among them. That's point number one. But point number two, it's very important to bear in mind that in a sense, the method of critiquing a hadith did evolve in that the earlier scholars, you have to understand, lived with the narrators of hadith. Hence, they had a very natural, very um, a, a very normal uh, way of dealing with reliability, unreliability. Later scholars were dealing with information written in books. Hence, they kind of shifted their methodology of authentication to a certain extent. And a final point that I'm going to mention is you had some influence from other disciplines, such as the field of logic, the field of law, on the field of hadith. Hence, some of the terminology changed and some of the methods of, of analyzing hadith changed. So that's why you have this dichotomy of the early scholars of hadith the mutaqaddimun versus the latter-day scholars of hadith, the mutaakhirun. Okay, and in in terms of <clears throat> the the most authentic um, compilations, I guess of of hadith, could you speak a bit more about that? Uh, the who were the authors? Um, what were their methodologies? Were they similar methodologies? Um, what was so, their geographic so distribution? So from among the early authentic compilations, we have the Sahihs of Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim. It's interesting, they were the first who, they were the pioneers of this uh, genre of collecting solely authentic hadith. So um, for the most part, Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim they do share, um, uh, you know, criteria of acceptability, although the level and standard of Imam al-Bukhari is much higher. Uh, Hafiz al-Hajar al-Asqalani, the scholar from Cairo I mentioned earlier, uh, the, perhaps one of the most qualified scholars of hadith among the latter-day scholars, he does a comparison between Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim, and he says, look, from the five condition of authenticity, which I myself mentioned a bit earlier, Imam al-Bukhari excels Imam Muslim in each one of these categories. But nonetheless, they share these principles in theory. So you have Imam al-Bukhari, you have Imam Muslim. Imam Muslim was kind of was junior to Imam al-Bukhari. Um, and then you have other compilations which were not necessarily of that high tier and standard of authenticity, yet they were reliable nonetheless. Another famous compilation of authentic uh, hadith was the um, compilation, the Sahih of Ibn Khuzayma and the Sahih of Ibn Hibban. And I feel it's important to understand that when we use the term Sahih, it's highly subjective because what is Sahih for someone like Imam Malik may not necessarily always be sahih for other people. So I'll give you an example. For someone like Imam Malik or Imam Abu Hanifa, a hadith that has an interruption in this chain, known as a mursal hadith, for them it's reliable, but for other scholars it's not. So when Imam Malik is collecting his muatta, in his understanding, he's collecting authentic narrations. But for other scholars of hadith, because it has interruptions in his chain oftentimes, um, and there's post-prophetic reports, it's not necessarily an authentic uh, compilation. Under so the famous ones you have is Imam al-Bukhari, Imam Muslim, and then you have the Sunan works. Sunan works are those that don't necessarily limit themselves to authentic hadith, but for the most part, they'll have hadith that are hasan, the second tier of reliability. Uh, those are the works of Abu Dawood al-Sijistani, uh, Abu Abdul Rahman al-Nasai, Abu Isa al-Tirmidhi, Abu Abdullah al-Abu Abu Abdullah al-Ibn Majah. Uh, you have these four authors of the Sunan. So the Sunan works, which collectively form the Kutub al-Sitta. You have other authors like uh, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who passed away to 41 of the Hijri calendar. He authored the famous Musnad which was one of the most extensive collections of hadith in his time. Now, now contemporaries of Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, they, they would have had their own methodology, their own unique methodology. And were there ever any discussions between these scholars 
and amongst other scholars as to whose methodology is best and why it's the best. These debates, to the best of my knowledge, you don't find them debating with each other on whose methods are better than others. You have to understand, we don't have many um, works on nomenclature or that exactly spell out the methodology from that time. We have a few. For instance, Imam Muslim, he has an introduction to his Sahih. And he kind of outlines to a certain extent his approach, his uh, criteria for authenticity, and he will explain why he believes his approach to be better better than other people. You'll have Imam Abu Dawood writing a booklet later on outlining the, uh, the uh, criteria for his book. You have Imam Al-Tirmidhi who writes this book known as Al-Ilal, and he kind of talks about the different ways of authenticity, but you don't have a detailed comparative work among them saying that, okay, these are my criteria, they are better than yours. It was much more intuitive, understood, inferred. It was only later on in the subsequent generation or the generation after that, where now scholars are studying the transmitters of these respective collections and they're comparing them and saying, okay, Imam Bukhari's is of the highest tier, Imam Muslim's is of lower, from starting from Abu Abdullah al-Hakim, uh, to Bayhaqi, um, to Ibn Salah later on. So in the time of Imam Bukhari, how, how was he perceived by other scholars? Uh, was he accepted? Uh, what did people think about his work? Interestingly, there was a lot of controversy around Imam al-Bukhari. He was from uh, Bukhara. And at that time, there was another famous scholar whose name was Al-Zuhli. Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhli. And we need to take a step back and understand that, look, there were a number of debates happening parallel to one another. One was the whole arena of hadith, but then you had the arena of theology, the arena of fiqh. So Imam al-Bukhari um, held some opinions theologically that did not mesh well with the theological opinions of others, particularly some of his contemporaries, such as Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Dawli, uh, because of which he was seen in some negative light by some of his contemporaries, particularly him. Um, another um, group of scholars who may have had some reservations with his method were scholars from Rai, the Razis, uh, Abu Zur'a al-Razi, Abu Hatim al-Razi, uh, and uh, Ibn Abi Hatim al-Razi, they, were, uh, they had some reservations with the mode of Imam al-Bukhari. But that just happened to be the nature of being contemporaneous to a person. It's just that if you're a contemporary, oftentimes uh, you see the other person as a contemporary, so it's natural that you will not necessarily accept everything from that person. So yes, it's not that universally everybody bowed to the brilliance of Imam al-Bukhari. Yes, that was definitely a thing that developed over time later on. There were some debates, like some people had took issue with the fact that why are these people like Imam Muslim and Imam Bukhari collecting Sahih Hadith? Uh, you have one of the Razis openly saying that, wait, these guys are collecting Sahih Hadith, what's wrong with them? Because if you're collecting only Sahih Hadith, people will come later on and say, okay, if you've collected all the Sahih Hadith, anything that I find outside of your collection, would by that fact not be authentic. So you did you did see this tension among their contemporaries. Some of them theological, some of them hadith. Others had more uh, jurisprudential differences. But I feel it's always important to uh, bear in mind the famous statement of Ibn Abd al-Bar, the scholar from Andalus of the 5th century, who uh, in his Jami'u Bayan al-Ilmi wa Fadlihi, he talks about this idea of mu'asara, being contemporaries, where it's absolutely natural that you'll have two contemporaries who we both, we later on revere both of them, but because they are contemporaries, they will use harsh language or they may not see eye to eye or they may disagree. And this was uh, from uh, early Islamic history between some of the Sahaba, between some of the famous Imams, some of the famous scholars of Hadith, you would find them maybe uh, taking uh, each other's statuses maybe not so seriously. Okay, and is there an overlap between the the Hadith that Imam Bukhari considered to be authentic 
with the hadith that earlier um, hadith scholars considered to be authentic. I'm assuming there was obviously an overlap between the number. I mean, was there ever any time where earlier scholars considered something to be authentic according to their definition, but later on when scholars compared that with uh, Imam Bukhari's um, definition and it just didn't, it didn't fit well and it was later on dismissed that that probably wasn't authentic. Yeah, I mean, there are many instances where a hadith was deemed authentic and later scholars disagreed with that. We have to understand, when a scholar says a hadith is authentic, it's interpretive in the end of the day. And they always say that there's always that margin of error, that I've done my best, I classify this hadith as authentic. It's possible that ontologically, in reality, this hadith may well not be authentic. And the opposite is also true. When they would deem a hadith unreliable, they're saying, look, this is interpretive, this is my judgment, and in reality, it could be a hadith, but just based on the information available to us, we pass this judgment. And later scholars will come back and say, wait, uh, you're saying this is authentic, but it's not authentic, or they'll disagree. There are many examples of that, where one scholar will say this hadith is absolutely reliable, and another scholar will say it's unreliable. One scholar will say this hadith is unreliable, and another scholar will come and say, no, it is reliable. And you'll have, there are loads of hadith of this category. But it's always important to remember that just because there's a disagreement regarding it, there are still standards and criteria which we refer back to and we work around in order to determine who's right and who's wrong. Understood. And just before we move on, could you please just tell us about the the geographical distribution of the most authentic, of the six authentic books um, of hadith? Um, okay, uh, it's, it's, it'll be nice uh, if you, uh, I don't know if you're able to share some links with your audience, your listeners. Sure, I can there's put it in there. Nice, there's a nice map that was um, uh, collected by the, by Ilmfeed. So, um, uh Basically, they, they collected this, um, uh, they made this map of geographically where all the four imams, uh, sorry, the four imams of fiqh and the six imams uh, of uh, hadith, where were they born, where uh, do they live. So, for instance, they have uh, Imam al-Bukhari, he is from uh, Bukhara, which is present-day um, Uzbekistan. And then you have Imam An-Nasai, who was from, uh, sorry, Imam Muslim, who was from Nisafur, which is present-day Iran. Imam Abu Dawood, who is from Sistan, which is present-day, the border of Iran and the border of Afghanistan. You have Ibn Majah, who is from Iran. You have Imam An-Nasai, who is from Turkmenistan. So you can see that the majority of the scholars were, at least of the major scholars of Hadith, these six authors, they were not from. Um, they were not of Arab origin. They were uh, from that area of Mawla uh, Nahar, Bukhara, Samarkand, Uzbekistan. Uh, inshallah, I can I can share a link to this uh, infographic, this map that was um, prepared by Ilmfid. It's a very beautiful map, and I feel it really contextualizes uh, the geographic locations of these scholars. And again, that doesn't mean you didn't have scholars in the Arab. Uh, world at that time. You had Imam Malik, who was from Medina, uh, you had, um, and other scholars from Iraq. You had Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who was from Baghdad, um, and uh, Imam Shafi'i, who he was also a scholar of hadith to an extent, um, depending on how you take the definition. He was in uh, Mecca, then later on he went to Kufa, and finally he was in Egypt. You had scholars of hadith in Egypt, like Al Layth ibn Sa'd. So, yeah, it, it, they were um, quite geographically spread. But at least the most prominent for our purposes, the six books, they predominantly um, trace their origins to the areas of Bukhara and Samarkand and Iran. And and these these scholars traveled extensively. I mean, they're they're. It's not like they just went to their neighbor uh, or someone in their backyard and did this. I mean, if you could just briefly tell us about, I mean, some of their struggles, some of their journeys, really, what what yeah. what made them who they were. Yeah, subhanAllah, I feel this is very important like for us to realize that traveling that time wasn't just a walk in the park, right? You had to travel extensively just to get one hadith. 
um, at times you're on one end of the world and you go to another. There's a, and this was something that they inherited from the companions. Um, you have uh, a very famous uh, story. You have actually a collection of hadith, a collection of story, sorry, reports by Khatib al-Baghdadi. It's called, um, uh, it's called Al-Rihla fi Talab al-Hadith. He basically talks about the different journeys that the scholars of hadith uh, undertook to collect hadith. So just from the companions, you have Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu who travels from Medina all the way, he goes to Cairo, Egypt. And he does this so he can meet a Sahabi, Uqba ibn Amir, and verify one hadith. So he travels all the way from Medina to thousands of kilometers to um, to uh, Egypt just so he can collect one hadith. So same thing with Imam al-Bukhari, you know, they're traveling extensively. They begin locally, then they go to uh, places, the centers of knowledge like Baghdad, Mecca, Medina. Uh, Medina and elsewhere. Like, for instance, Imam Abu Dawood, just for one example, he travels very extensively. He starts off with the local areas in uh, Sijistan, he goes to Balkh, then he goes to Baghdad, he goes to uh, Egypt, he goes to Sham, and he's just traveling and traveling just so that he can collect these ahadith and put it into one place, and that's what they dedicated their lives for. Um, you have some uh, really beautiful stories as well. I mean, the sacrifices they undertook. Uh, you have stories of people who, in the search for knowledge, they actually lost their lives. They sacrificed um, their family, their wealth. There isn't uh, a, a contemporary author, Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda. He wrote a book called Safahat um, Min al Ulama, pages on the patience and perseverance of the scholars in the acquisition of knowledge, and he mentions pages upon pages of their sacrifices, uh, their um, their ability to, you know, lead their family, to acquire knowledge, just so that, you know, oftentimes just get one hadith or a few hadith or, you know, dedicate their lives to hadith in general. Okay, thank you so much uh, for that. I want to move on and kind of discuss hadith as as a source of knowledge i mean w- what are some presuppositions that we need to consider when 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 we use hadith as um, a source of knowledge as a way of, of 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 understanding or of knowing what the prophet said i mean are there any underlying presuppositions that we have to keep in mind how objective really is the is the is the is uh, is the criteria of of, of hadith Look, we have to remember that objectivity is somewhat of a mirage, right? Every person has their own subjectivities. This idea of a blank slate, um, as some Enlightenment thinkers would um, wish people had, is um, untenable. So yes, there are some subjectivities. But for the most part, we have to first figure out that when I'm presented with a hadith, what area will I be utilizing that hadith for? So let's begin. Am I using it to establish a, um, an issue of creed, theology? Then I need a different standard of authenticity. Am I using it for law? Am I using it for a, just a normal historical account? Am I using it for virtues, fadail? So depending on what area I will be using it, the level of authenticity that I require, the level of rigor that I require will vary. But definitely there are some presuppositions that we have when we are faced with a hadith, right? So one, for instance, according to scholars of hadith, is the the, the generation of the companions, they are all reliable. Adalatul sahaba We say that the Qur'an and the Prophet ﷺ in his sunnah they have praised the companion so much that there's no need for any other person to now uh, praise them. So one presupposition is we regard the companion companions as reliable sources of knowledge. Uh, another presupposition that we will have is that the default is we will approach hadith uh, with um, by erring on the side of caution. Uh, by erring on the side of caution in that. The default is that it's unreliable. We have to establish that it's reliable. Not that the default is that a hadith is reliable and we have to uh, prove it the other way. 
Um, uh, another thing that um, is um, often the case with regards to um, some presupp presuppo presuppositions with regards to hadith is that Hafid al-Dhahabi, he says, look, we do, Hafid al-Dhahabi, he's a scholar from Damascus. Uh, he passed away 748 of the Hijri calendar. He says that, look, we do not claim that the field of hadith is flawless, infallible. But it is the closest and the most humanly possible effort at ascertaining historical truths. And I feel that's something that we need to bear in mind that, yes, there may be some subjectivities. Yes, it's not uh, flawless, but it's still um, a, a phenomenal um, piece of work and an achievement that is a source of pride for Muslims. Understood. And I, I want to revisit what you had mentioned about the adala of the Sahaba. Now, I, you, you, you went over this briefly, but I wanted to ask again, how do you establish this? And after establishing it, what does it take into account? I mean, there's obviously aspects of, of their morality, of you know, their sense of justice, of their overall superiority as spiritual beings. But then there's also this aspect of you know, this intellectual aspect. So how is all of that accounted for in hadith sciences? Adalat al-Sahaba, the reliability of the companions is not such a, you can say, a large claim. Because some people confuse Adala with Isma, two completely different terms. Shawaliullah al-Dihlawi from the subcontinent, he explains that when we say the companions are adul, they are al-Sahaba uh, kullum adul, they're all um, reliable, we're basically saying that they will not lie. They will only speak the truth. Because what's the purpose of reliability insofar as historical reports are concerned? Whether that person is the most righteous, whether that person is scrupulous, he's a great worshiper, he's an amazing traveler, he has a strong connection with Allah, those are great things. But for my, um, for my purposes, what I'm looking for in a source is their truthfulness. So insofar as the truthfulness of the companions are concerned, he says there's no instance where they had ever lied. In fact, we have instances, we have uh, reports from Yaqub al-Fasawi, he relates from Anas radiallahu anhu, where he says that, look, we never lie. We don't even know what lying means. You know, like for them to lie in general speech, let alone about the Prophet ﷺ, was extremely far-fetched. And Shawulullah, he doesn't just take this on face value. He says, I've done an exhaustive study of the lies of these companions and I find, found no instance where they lied in general speech, let alone about the Prophet ﷺ. Now, that's in terms of like uh, whether they lied or not. But how do we establish this? There are multiple verses in the Qur'an where Allah expresses His pleasure about the companions. And there are multiple authentic, widely transmitted hadith where the Prophet ﷺ relied on the, uh, the Sahaba, the companions, to relay information. And the most common is right before he passed away in his final sermon, he said, Go and convey on my behalf, even if it's one verse of the Qur'an. If he had reservations about their reliability, he would have only asked a select group of people, but he had that confidence in all of them that he made a blanket statement. So yeah, from there we establish, number one, the, what we need to you know, um, explain is, what are we trying to establish? By saying that they're collectively reliable, we're saying that collectively they will not lie. Hence, as sources of historical information, we can openly rely on them. They have never lied in general uh, circumstances, let alone against the Prophet ﷺ. How do we establish that? The fact that the Qur'an speaks of them so highly and the Messenger of Allah ﷺ had confidence in them relaying their information later on. And, and this kind of brings up a following question like, okay, like then that would mean that they were some... A special category of human beings, but human beings are all, you know, like I think the, the the principle that they use in the historical critical method is the principle of dissimilarity, that generations are for the most part the same. Why is it that you regard the companions to be any different? Historically speaking, people should be the same. Well, the answer to that is these aren't any ordinary people. They were people who are taken from their ignorance to knowledge, from darkness to light, 
through the medium of the Messenger of Allah So yes, we accept that they were special people and they were regarded as such in the Quran and the Sunnah. Now, there's something I wanted to kind of follow up with. Now, we in 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 establishing the 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 uprightness of these individuals, are we relying on reports that depend on the uprightness of these individuals for us to authenticate and then use to support them as valid sources of knowledge? I mean, where exactly are I, we getting our information? I, 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 I get what you're saying. Like, is it circular reasoning that, okay, you're saying that they're by default reliable, and we're using these default reliable reports to establish their default reliability. But that's not the case. We first established the reliability from the Quran that our verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises them very highly. We first established it from the Quran, number one. And number two, there are such multiple widely transmitted reports that they reach a level of tawatur, where they reach a level of uh, of reliability where it's not plausible that they could have concocted these reports okay and and i think we are going to touch upon a lot of these things in our i'd like to call rapid fire but i, I doubt there'll be rapid fire questions but i do want to move on and uh, kind of touch upon each of these questions because they're all very important and i think that one of the most actually this doesn't have to be a rapid fire uh, segment, but definitely I want to discuss criticism of hadith um, in the early period of, of of Islam. Criticism as to not individual aspects of narrators or anything like that, but the whole project of, of hadith uh, in the earliest period and in the 19th and 20th centuries. Okay. Um... Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, uh, I apologize. I thought when you were talking about the earlier period, you were talking about in the first or second century of Islamic history. If you're referring to the pre-modern and modern uh, era, then eras, yes, there were a lot of criticism from uh, beginning with non-Muslims, um, Western Orientalists, and whatnot. But you have to, you got to kind of take a step back and understand that the entire project of Hadith was not necessarily fully accepted by every individual and every sect. You had early sects such as the Mu'tazila who took great issue with uh, the scholars of Hadith and their mode of uh, authentication. And um, that's early on. We can get into that later. But in terms of the modern era, the different approaches to criticizing Hadith and how... Um, how did that eventually spill into Muslim-majority countries? Where did it begin? Dr. Jonathan Brown, in his book on Hadith, he categorizes the stages of Hadith criticism from the West, the Western Academy, into four stages. The first is the Orientalist approach. The second is the Philo-Islamic apology. The third is the Revisionist approach. And the fourth is the Western re-evaluation. These are kind of like over a century the western uh, kind of take on hadith went through these different stages. The first is the orientalist approach. Basically you had the whole um, colonization project they begin to get introduced to Islamic sciences the Quran, the seerah and hadith. So the western scholars their study of hadith was part of a much larger study into Eastern culture. So they're like, okay, we're colonizing these people, so we need to understand our subject. It was kind of a, a power dynamic. So let's study everything about them. So let's also study their hadith. Their first uh, kind of um, uh, introduction into Islamic studies was through the Quran, but obviously you have hadith. So um, you have in the early 1800s, uh, Gustav Well, I believe is his name, uh, he um, he has some negative remarks regarding hadith. You have uh, Alois Sprenger, and you have others who have some negative things to say about hadith, but it wasn't until the early 1900s with the famous Hungarian orientalist whose name was um, Ignaz Goldzier. 
who really takes on the field of hadith from an academic approach, a somewhat rigorous study, his book, uh, Muslim Studies, he goes into um, why he believes hadith to be unreliable. They were a result of early political strife. They were fabricated for whatever reasons. So Goldier happens to be like the torchbearer of this extremely uh, skeptical approach to hadith. Now you have to understand that that discourse, although it was happening in this like ivory tower academic circle, it slowly spilled into uh, the public square in Muslim countries. So you have uh, you have Muslims who are studying in these academies, these universities. They're affected by these ideas, and now they began begin replicating it and writing and publishing. So this is kind of like the Orientalist approach, and you have uh, Muslims who kind of replicate. So what I mean by that is, for instance, in Cairo, you have this famous um, uh, uh, skeptic of hadith whose name is Mahmoud Abu Rayya, his Adwa al-Sunnah uh, al He is very critical of hadith. So this is kind of like that first phase where people are extremely critical. And then you have the second phase, the philo-Islamic apology, where now Muslims as well as non-Muslims are looking back and they're like, look, your criticisms are absolute nonsense like they're responding back like look you're saying that for instance one argument they would make is you have uh hadith it was uh fabricated and back projected to the prophet for x y and z reason you'll have people like mustafa sibai from damascus writing and saying wait this doesn't make sense because why would they back project it when uh, they could have easily done it all the time, but they didn't do it. Sometimes they did it, sometimes they didn't. You have to be consistent in your um, objection. So you have the second phase where people are now responding back. Then you have the third phase where they take it to an extreme. Extreme meaning that not only are they rejecting hadith, there are these revisionists who now begin to reject like basically the fundamentals of Islam, people Islam, people like Patricia Crone, uh, Michael Cook, and others. You know, in their book Hagarism, absolutely, I don't know. Only God knows what they were thinking about when they wrote that book. But they now they begin uh, casting aspersions and doubts about the fundamentals of Islam. Was Muhammad Sallallahu actually a person? Is the Quran, as we know it, was Mecca a place? So that's kind of a, so let alone the Hadith, they take this radical approach. And then finally, you have uh, even Western scholars and even Muslim scholars who look back on this uh, century of intense debate and conversation and and they begin to reevaluate. So you have Harold Motsky, you have uh, Christopher Melkert, you have um, David Powers. You have so many people who are now like, they're, they're beginning to uh, reevaluate. And by the late 20th century, early 21st century, people have, for the most part, uh, picked their camps. Some people are highly skeptical, other people are more accepting. And fortunately, thanks to people like Dr. Jonathan Brown, uh, Dr. Omar Abdullah, and others, you know, even Dr. Harold Motsky, just the, the very sophisticated academic way they established the reliability of hadith within a Western historical critical uh, model, uh, um, people are now beginning, to, people are now more accepting of hadith than they were, say, a decade or two ago in that uh, entire world. Obviously, you have these uh, parallel worlds that are somewhat um, uh, functioning at the same time. Dr. Iftikhar Zaman, um, in his uh, study on the hadith of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the will of Sa'ad, in the introduction, he mentions something really interesting that you have this like entire um, century of debate that's happening in the Western Academy. And then you have this entirely different world among Muslim scholars of how they're critiquing hadith, and the two worlds have yet to meet. So you have Shaht. You have Harold um, uh, Motsky. You have all these people just writing and talking about hadith, but they're doing it in their own world. And then you have the Muslim scholars, and they're doing it in their own world. However, in recent uh, times, in like the last decade or whatnot, the two worlds are beginning to merge. Muslim scholars are now uh, now learning more about uh, Western historical criticisms of hadith, and Western scholars are now beginning to educate themselves more on the traditional approach. I hope that's done some justice to... I an overview of the history of how hadith criticism kind of evolved from the Western Academy over the last century or two. 
Uh, really, on, on what basis were these academics disagreeing with the 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 the, the enterprise of, of hadith? Um, like even before the 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 intense skepticism of uh, of Cook and Krona, on what basis really were these people just dismissing the the traditional methodologies? Was it just, I guess? So, so you had you had different reasons. So, for instance, somebody like Ignaz Goldzier. He wasn't so focused on the chains of transmission. He was purely looking at the content. And he would say, wait, look, this hadith was, is clearly pro-Umayyad. So it means that the Umayyads were fabricating hadith. So I'll give you an example. There's this hadith uh, about uh, you're not allowed to travel except the three places. Uh, Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabawi, and Masjid al-Aqsa. Now, um, Ignaz Goldzier, he looks at this hadith and he says, this is clearly a, an Umayyad fabrication uh, that was put in the, in the mouth, uh, that was fabricated by their mouthpiece, Ibn Shihab Azuhri, because what they wanted to do was kind of uh, um, move the caravan. There's some crazy uh, reasoning that he was giving that they wanted people to now focus more towards the Umayyads. And on that ground, purely on a, a metan textual basis, they will say that, that it's fabricated. Or for instance, they'll say, okay, such and such narrator like Ziyat ibn Ibrahim, he was clearly close to the uh, the ruling elite of the Abbasids. So that means whatever hadith he narrates, he fabricated it. Or you know that people were fabricating hadith for uh, tribal fanaticism, for legal fanaticism. All of this shows that we cannot rely on uh, on the field uh, of hadith. You have other people also like Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan who had this really uh, like really intense crisis of faith in trying to um, reconcile the modern worldview with the worldview that's developed by the hadith and now he begins criticizing it because he feels that in order for Muslims to progress we can't hold on to this hadith so now he begins criticizing it. So th- you have people who kind of largely based their criticism on the texts and what they feel to be inconsistencies. Again, the HCM, historical critical method, is an entire thing, like how was it founded, what happened, and how was this uh, shifted from biblical studies to Quranic and Hadith studies. Other people like Joseph Shah, they had more Isnad-based criticisms, where they would say, okay, um, you have hadith, but if you look at the chains of transmission, it seems that you had regional schools, people from like Basra or Kufa or Egypt. What happened was they had famous statements that were circulating and they decided, well, you know what, let's back project this to the Messenger of Allah. And they would say, look, you have evidences of someone narrating something from the Prophet and someone narrating that same report from a companion, which shows that perhaps one person back projected it to the Prophet. But that's a problematic reasoning because people at times would mention the Prophet or they would mention the companion, but by mentioning the companion, they're not negating that it's from the Prophet. They're just for the purposes of brevity or for whatever reason, they limit it to the companions. So these are just some considerations of why from the Western Academy of people criticizing it, or even some Muslims who felt uh, this sense of inferiority complex where, oh, it, it, it kind of conflicts with the Western worldview, uh, women's issue, gender issue, um, the issue of slavery, the issue of leadership, politics. And they're like, okay, you know what? If we can't accept it, let's begin criticizing it. Okay, and, and so in terms of Muslim scholars who refute these Orientalists, if, for example, one were to say that according to an accepted methodology, X hadith is valid. And this hadith conveniently supports some regime or encourages violence against another regime. In terms of opposing these claims, I wonder how much is a difference of worldviews. Because, of course, if there is a prophet, right, a prophet knows the future. And he's going to say things that, you know, speak about the future. And so, according to some people, that might be enough proof and evidence to accept a hadith, which to others might simply be, you know, some type of really strange fabrication. So I wonder how much worldview goes into this. Oh, definitely. And it's very interesting that you'll find these uh, scholars, I mean, Western scholars among themselves, they 
oftentimes can even make up their mind why a hadith should be fabricated, right? There's a very interesting example of, you know, the, the incident where Abbas radiallahu anhu is taken as a captive and Nabi Sallam eventually frees him and asks for him to be uh, freed. And you'll find two different scholars looking at the same hadith. Some are saying, okay, look, it is pro-Abbasid, hence it's a fabrication. And someone else is saying, no, look, it's anti-Abbasid, hence it's a fabrication. Uh, so it's like, at times they can't even figure out themselves why a hadith or a particular report was considered reliable or should not be reliable. It's, it's very, it's highly subjective, definitely highly subjective. Okay. Because some people will say, look at that incident of Abbas. It kind of puts him in negative light. Look, he was, he was a captive and he had to be at the mercy of the Prophet ﷺ. And they're saying, look, it's very pro-Abbasid. I mean, sorry, it's anti-Abbasid. So they fabricated it. Others will say, no, it's very pro-Abbasid because, look, the Prophet ﷺ went out of his way and he gave a ransom for him to be freed. So it just goes to show how subjective their explanations are. So moving on from, from this very important discussion, I, you mentioned Mutawatir. Now, now, what exactly is mutawatir, and and how is it different from sahih, and what are what establishes something as mutawatir? Mutawatir, truth be told, is something classically is foreign to the field of hadith. Mutawatir is a more philosophical or a term related to logic or history, but it's not so frequently used by early scholars of hadith. It was only a later development. There's a scholar, his name is Dr. Suhail Laher. His uh, entire thesis, I believe from Harvard, was on this. It's called Twisted Threads. He kind of does a very robust study on the history and development of mutawatir. Okay, so what is tawatir and how do we understand it? So classically, historians have uh, categorized reports based on the number of transmitters. So one level of transmission is known as khabar wahid. Khabar wahid is solitary transmission. You have one person narrating to another person. So it's single. A narrates to B, who narrates to C, or two people. Two people narrate to two people, or three people. They narrate to three people. So that's kind of like one level, khabar wahid. Mutawatir is this level of historical certainty where so many people transmit a piece of information that it is impossible for them to have colluded. It's impossible for them to have fabricated that report just by the sheer number of people and just by the sheer impossibility of them to have gotten together and made that report up. This is much more, so it, it, like when there's so many people who report something like that, you, you, you get this sense of certainty. So for instance, I myself have never been to China, but there's so many people speaking about it that I have the certainty that China exists. So this is kind of like Dawatur. Dawatur even linguistically means preponderance, multiplicity, so much. Now this is, it's much more general than Hadith. It's more general than Hadith. It relates to historical reports in general. Like any, like, like the example of does China exist, that can fall under Dawatur. However, as the field of hadith began developing and you have this cross-fertilization of uh, disciplines, you know, the discipline of hadith, the discipline of kalam, the discipline of usul fiqh, and scholars from each begin kind of uh, exchanging their ideas, the, the, the concept of tawatur kind of now finds its way into the field of hadith. Because you'll find people like Imam al-Tahawi, for instance, in his Sharhum Ba'an al-Athar, he will use the term tawatara, but he's intending something very different from the technical uh, definition that you'll find later scholars like Khatib al-Baghdadi or Ibn Salah mention. So again, uh, tawatur is something, or mutawatir is a report that kind of yields certainty, um, and it's more general than hadith. However, it found its way into hadith. And that's why scholars have noted that to find hadith that actually meet the criteria of tawatur in the field of hadith is very rare. If anything, you have the hadith, um, that whoever lies about me knowingly should prepare his or their abode in the fire. So there are very few hadith that 
meet that uh, category. The Usulis, the scholars of uh, legal theory, they tend to focus on this concept of tawatur. Um, uh, and a last point I would mention. So, so you have tawatur and khabr wahid. Now, how is tawatur different from sahih? Well, classically, they wouldn't really care about tawatur because for them, when a hadith reached a certain level of authenticity, it gives you enough confidence in it that you can yield knowledge. It gives you um, maybe not certainty, but it's enough to use it in law and whatnot. But later scholars would say that the difference between a sahih hadith and a mutawatir hadith would be you can have a sahih hadith that's numerically only transmitted by a few people, hence it's khabr wahid. Whereas a mutawatir hadith just by the sheer number of people will be authentic because so many people, but it will be more broader than a sahih hadith. So every mutawatir hadith will be sahih, but not every sahih will be a mutawatir hadith. But again, it's very important to note that the usage of the term mutawatir is uh, very foreign to classical hadith studies. So, so there's really no, I guess, consistent definition then of mutawatir as opposed to sahih? The of mutawatir is that report that was uh, transmitted by such a large group of people um, that they're colluding to have fabricated it is impossible. And this large number is found in every strata of transmission um, and it um, eventually traces back to a report based on sensory perception. That's the technical definition. Um, and each part of that definition has a reason why it's there. But um, yeah, that's the common usage. Even in hadith uh, books of hadith nomenclature like Muqaddim al-Salah and Nuzhat al-Nadha, when they uh, talk about it, they define it like that. But again, it, you can tell it was a very late uh, installment to the field and discussion of hadith. Okay. So, I mean, before, um, uh, I guess, I, I just want to conceptualize hadith. So, there is the Prophet is saying something and then a companion hears it and then the companion passes it on to somebody else passes it on to somebody else passes it on to somebody else until it eventually finds its way into into a book now in any given gathering there are probably multiple people people who are hearing the prophet say that same thing and those people are going f like to different areas and they're telling different people so in each of these different books, are do we have multiple accounts of the same thing being narrated by different people, by different companions? So in certain circumstances, yes. In other circumstances, no. We have certain ahadith that were independently just transmitted by one companion or two companions. Other hadith we have were transmitted by nearly a hundred, if not more, companions. So yeah, we can't just give a blanket ruling on every hadith. What we do is when we're going to analyze the chain of transmission, we now look for corroborating reports, mutaba'at and shawahid, and we ascertain thereby how many companions have transmitted, how many people corroborated. And that is something that scholars of hadith were very um, eager to seek out, corroboration. And for them, when a hadith was isolated in its transmission, it kind of um, led to more doubt on its reliability. They're always looking for um, they're always looking for corroboration in multiple sources. So yeah, um, it just depends on the particular hadith. Some hadith were only transmitted by say Abu Huraira or Abu Bakr or Umar radiallahu an. Um, other hadith were transmitted by five or six. And some hadith were actually transmitted by over a hundred. Like that hadith, Man Kadaba was transmitted by over a hundred uh, companions. Okay. And so when we talk about mutawatir, we're referring to companions. Um... So companions are only the first strata. Uh, technically, in terms of definition, you we're talking about every strata, the companions, the tabi'un, the tabi'ut tabi'in. You need to have such a large number of people. Although that's the ideal definition, in practice, if you look at some of the later scholars who've written books on 
um, on mutawatir people like Asuyuti or Abdul Hay Al Katani, more contemporary. It seems they're focusing on the Sahaba. It's very interesting that in terms of definition, they would say that you need it in every strata. But when they're looking to see whether so many people have reported it, they just say, okay, look, you have 25 companions who narrate a particular hadith, hence it becomes mutawadir. So yeah, yeah later on you, you'll see this sense of leniency that kind of begins to creep in in practice. Okay. And what's the purpose of mutawatir? Mutawatir basically means that when I see this report, it's been transmitted by so many people that now it engenders within me a degree of certainty. 